Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. As Nick mentioned when, we, uh, when he introed that new song, we're in a season uh, uh, in a church calendar that is between Easter and Pentecost, and we felt that we really wanted to take this opportunity uh, in this season leading up to the day of Pentecost to speak about the ministry and person of the Holy Spirit. So that's four weeks away. Day of Pentecost is on uh, the 23rd of May. So between now and then, we're going to have uh, a season where there'll be some teaching. We plan to do a panel. Uh, our comms department are putting together a film of people in, in, in Gateway talking about their Holy Spirit experiences. And then on the day of Pentecost, we really want to do give place and space for uh, ministry time, for people to feel and be prayed for with regard renewal, rejuvenation, awakening, all of those uh, verbs that um, Nick mentioned for people to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So that's where this season is going to go. That's what we're planning. Uh, And I'm going to launch it this evening, or I launched it this morning, but with you this evening by uh, looking at the passage where we traditionally call the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. So I'm going to read the first 21 verses of Acts chapter 2. I'm reading in the message translation, and then I want to make some observations regarding this passage. It starts off, when the Feast of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, gale force. No one could tell where it came from. It filled the whole building. Then, like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks, and they started speaking in a number of different languages as the Spirit prompted them. There were many Jews staying in Jerusalem just then, devout pilgrims from all over the world. When they heard the sound, they came on the run. Then when they heard one after another their own mother tongues being spoken, they were blown away. They couldn't for the life of them figure out what was going on and kept saying, aren't these all Galileans? How come we are hearing them talk in our various mother tongues? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, visits from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, immigrants from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, even Cretans and Arabs. They are speaking our language, describing God's mighty works. Their heads were spinning. They couldn't make head nor tail of it. They talked back and forth, confused. What's going on here? Others joked. They're drunk on cheap wine. That's when Peter stood up and backed by the other 11, spoke out with bold urgency. Fellow Jews, all of you who are visiting Jerusalem, listen carefully and get this story straight. These people aren't drunk, as some of you suppose. They haven't had time to get drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. This is what the prophet Joel announced would happen. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on every kind of people. Your sons will prophesy, also your daughters. Your young men will see visions. Your old men dream dreams. When the time comes, I'll pour out my spirit on those who serve me, men and women both, and they'll prophesy. I'll set wonders in the sky above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and billowing, billowing smoke, the sun turning black and the moon blood red. Before the day of the Lord arrives, the day tremendous and marvellous, and whoever calls out for help to me, God will be saved. So as we look at this passage, there's probably a number of ways we could approach it, but I want to suggest to you that in this passage, we are told that the 
experience of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, will bring the people of God into three things. It will bring them into the presence of the future. It will bring them into the presence of the Lord. And it will bring them into the presence of the nation. So I want to consider those three things. First of all, that experience of Pentecost, the outpoured Holy Spirit, will bring this new fledgling community into the presence of the future. The passage starts by talking and saying when the day of Pentecost was fully come. And as I mentioned this morning, honestly, there is a sermon in that one phrase. It's a sermon that I'm not going to preach, but it might be something that you in your own personal study time might like to go and look at. You go back to the Feast of Pentecost as it's found in the Old Testament and you see the amazing both parallels, the similarities and the dissimilarities between this ancient feast and its fulfillment among the New Testament people of God. That phrase connects what's happening in the New Testament with the Old Testament story in a manner that we were talking about a few weeks ago. This event is the continuation of and the fulfillment of the story that the Old Testament tells. So Pentecost was one of the great feasts. It was the second of three great feasts. And it was sometimes called the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Firstfruits. And Numbers chapter 28 verse 26 tells us that at the beginning of this feast, they would bring a portion of a harvest that was about to come, the firstfruits of a coming harvest, and they would come and offer it before the Lord. And it was a way of thanking God in faith for the harvest that was about to come. It was a way, in a sense, of experiencing or tasting something that was yet to come in the future. It wasn't the whole of the harvest. It was just a small portion. It wasn't the whole feast. It was just a taste. But it was anticipating in the present something that was to fully come in the days that lay ahead. And what that tells us is the coming of the Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost and to the people of God is the presence and promise of the future happening in the here and now. So let me explain what I meant, what I mean. A few weeks ago, I spoke to you about a promise in the scriptures, a promise concerning a new exodus. The Jewish people from the time of the Babylonian captivity in the Old Testament right through into the time of Jesus considered themselves to be a people in exile. Now, although they geographically had come back into the land, they were nonetheless under the dominion of overlords, various ones, the Greeks and the Romans in this present moment. And, and so they knew that although they had returned geographically, the exile as yet had not finished. And the promise of the new exodus that the prophets spoke about hadn't yet begun. They lived in the promise of and the anticipation of a time that God would bring that exile to a close and would initiate a new exodus that would be like and unlike the previous exodus that we read about in, in uh, the first chapters of the Bible. It would be much greater and it would be led by a new Moses who the prophet said would be the son of David. So the prophets from Moses himself right through Malachi particularly Isaiah and Ezekiel, had spoken about this new exodus that would come. The finish of exile, the new exodus begun, and they gave them some non-negotiable conditions that would have to be met, and in these conditions being met would indicate that the exile was over and the beginning of the exodus had begun. And they were things like the, God, the people of God would not be the tail, but they would be the head. Instead of having uh, been ruled over, they would come into a place of rulership. 
Elijah would have to come. David's son would be on the throne. Yahweh's name would be glorified among the nations and it would be marked by resurrection and by outpoured spirit. They were the non-negotiables that the prophets spoke about that would mark the end of exile and the beginning of the new exodus. So the Jewish scholars of the time They believed that the present age would end and these things would happen, ushering God's people into a new age. They called it the age to come. So they expected the resurrection and the outpoured spirit to be concurrent with what we would call the last day. Now that belief is echoed in the words that Martha spoke to Jesus when she was standing with him at her brother Lazarus' grave. And Jesus said, Do you believe that he can rise from the dead? Your brother will rise again. And Martha answered and said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That's John chapter 11. So she's echoing the belief that was current among the people. The end of the age would be marked by resurrection and an outpoured spirit. Diagrammatically, we could perhaps illustrate it like this. So you've got this age, suddenly you've got the inbreaking of resurrection and outpoured spirit that would issue the new age and God's people would experience the new age. Now much to their surprise, Jesus takes what was supposed to happen at the end of the age and brings it to the middle of the age so that there's resurrection and outpoured spirit in the beginning or in the middle rather of this present age. So diagrammatically it changes. This age carries on, but it's inbroken by Jesus' resurrection and the outpoured spirit at Pentecost. And that issues into into beginning a a new age, the age to come. So concurrently, we have this age going on and now a new age breaking into it. The promised new creation of the age to come has broken into our present age. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if any person is in Christ, most of our translations say they are a new creation. So, so we say, look, you know, if you're born again, God started something new in you. And, and that's true, of course. But what that passage actually says, if any man is in Christ, it doesn't say he is. It just simply says new creation. If any person is in Christ, that's evidence that the new creation has begun, that the, that the age to come has broken into our present age. With the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we, the community of God, are now living in the presence of the future. We are experiencing something of the future, something of the future in the here and now. In Hebrews chapter 6, the writer to the book of Hebrews talks about this. Now he's talking in this rather sober passage about people that are doing what in our time is called deconversion and he speaks in pretty sobering words. I'm not wanting to speak to deconversion in this message but I want you to notice what he says about the Holy Spirit. He says in chapter 6 verse 4, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come. And then he goes on to say, you know, it's hard to get them to come back to repentance. But notice the phraseology there. People tasting the age to come Tasting the power of the age to come. Now, as I said before, a taste is not the whole feast. 
The first fruits weren't the whole harvest, but they were an indication of what was to come. They held in their hands, in the first fruits, the promise of the future. And in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and on his community from that moment on, we are ushered into the future age. Just a taste. Not the full deal, but a taste. In the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the people of God are presently living in the reality of something whose fullness remains yet to be experienced. That's why Paul, when he's writing about the Holy Spirit, says things like this. This is the book of Ephesians chapter 1. It is in Christ that you once heard the message and believed. This message is your salvation. You found yourselves home, free, signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. And this down payment from God, speaking about the Holy Spirit, is the first installment on what's coming. A reminder that we'll get everything God has planned for us, a praising and glorious life. Paul talks about the Holy Spirit as being a down payment. In one translation, the word used is apparently the present day word that Hebrews use for an engagement ring. Engagement is not the wedding, but it's the promise of the wedding. And he's saying, I've given you the Holy Spirit, and that's the promise of what's to come. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, He has put his brand upon us, his mark of ownership, and given us his Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee that we belong to him and as the first installment of all that he's going to give us. So Paul describes the Holy Spirit in terminology like a down payment, a taste, a pledge, a first installment on and of the future. So the first thing I want to suggest to you is that the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the people of God it brings them into the presence of the future. The second thing is that with the coming of the Holy Spirit, we are brought into nothing less than the presence of the Lord, the presence of God. It's easy to read passages like Acts chapter 2, read of fire and wind that occurred on that day, and to imagine that the Holy Spirit is more like an impersonal force than he is like a divine personality. I mean, how do you think about the reality that is described in Scripture as wind, fire, rain, oil, as a dove, or as clothing, or as dew? How do you think about the one who is intangible and non-physical and yet can touch people so powerfully that onlookers conclude that they're drunk? He's invisible and yet powerful, inexpressible yet intimate, reliable yet unpredictable. It's difficult to think about him as a person. It's somewhat easier to think about him as an it, as a force. But in the coming of the Holy Spirit, we are dealing nothing less than with the coming of God himself to his people. He's the third member of the divine trinity, the one God and three persons. In talking about the Trinity, in understanding God to be a relational Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're not talking about human speculation or human philosophy. We're talking about the revelation that the Scriptures afford us. A divine, transcendent community of one God and three personal entities. Christians are not tritheists. We do not worship three gods. We believe in one God, but we believe he's not solitary. God is not in single, undifferentiated unity as Muslims believe Allah is. He's not an isolated individual, but we believe he's a loving, interpersonal community of one God and three persons. Now, that's mystery, but it's not a rationality. And the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost, we have nothing less than the coming of God himself to dwell among us. And in that coming, we are brought into the presence of God. I believe that human beings are made for a transcendent encounter with God. We 
yearn for transcendence. We yearn for the experience of transcendence. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes says that God has made us and he's put an eternity-sized gap in our heart. And there is nothing this side of eternity that will fill it apart from God himself. Those of you who've read C.S. Lewis, you may recall that he took a word from the German language and brought it into the English language to try and describe this yearning for that transcendence. It's the, it's the German word sensuk. And it, and it has a longing for something that's just beyond our experience. He talks about a, a longing for a country that as yet we have not been to. We are, as a people, fascinated and drawn to the supernatural. And if people don't find it in the church, they look for it elsewhere. In the New Age, in the occult, in Eastern meditation, in tantric sex, and in a dozen other ways where they are promised some kind of transcendent encounter with the supernatural other. I really believe that these expressions, with people going and looking in those directions, I think that's the unpaid bills of the church, if I can put it that way. Because we have failed to encourage people to encounter God existentially, to encounter God experientially. And as a result, they go looking elsewhere. So often the church has limited Christianity to the cerebral creedal realm. But Christianity isn't something that you only believe in with your head. Christianity was intended to be an encounter with God that impacts the whole person. It's a blending of both the rational and the mystical. It's not one at the expense of the other. Christianity is far too rational to be entirely mystical, but it's far too mystical to simply be entirely rational. On the day of Pentecost, we read people being brought into the presence of God and they are encountered by God and it shows. People looking on thought they were drunk. They were under the influence. What the onlookers were seeing made them conclude that they had to be under the influence of alcohol. And Peter has to start the first sermon of the early church by saying they aren't drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. The pubs aren't open. Something dramatic was taking place. Now we know that the people looking on saw these people speaking in tongues. But it has to be much, much more than that. You never look on at people speaking in another language and ipso facto conclude they're drunk simply because they're speaking in another language. Something much more than that was going on. And although this passage in Acts chapter 2 doesn't outline all the manifestations of the Holy Spirit that was happening on and in these people, there are other passages in Scripture, and we have the testimony of historical revival seasons that do describe what happens to people when they are encountered by the transcendent God in a powerful manner. And we read about things like crying and weeping and shaking and laughing and falling down and speaking in tongues and prophesying. The coming of the Holy Spirit is not a creedal issue. It is an experiential one. And we believe that we're meant to know God in much more than simply a cognitive way. I, I believe in my head, but I've never experienced him. Now, I hasten to say that this isn't, this isn't about simply tallying up experiences. The coming of the Holy Spirit um, is not simply euphoria. The goal is not ecstasy. 
Now, charismatic and Pentecostal people are often accused by others of pursuing ecstatic experiences, and sometimes, unfortunately, that criticism has been true. But at the first Pentecost, it was actually not the disciples who were ecstatic, but the onlookers. It says that they were amazed and they marveled, and the Greek word is the word from which we get our English word ecstasy. The ones who were ecstatic were the ones who were watching on. So I hasten to say the goal of being impacted by God is not simply euphoria. Now that may or may not happen, but when God encounters you, ultimately that will flow out in what he's really after, and that's vocation and mission. So Pentecost means that we are brought into the presence of the future. It also means we're brought into the presence of God. And the third thing is it brings us into the presence of the nations. I won't take time to go back and read those first, uh, that first portion, but just, just a simple part of it. When, they, when the onlookers saw what was transpiring, it says, they marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of them in our own language in which we were born? We can understand what they're saying, and yet they're Galileans. And there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya. Uh, uh, Parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans, and Arabs. We all hear them speaking in our own language. Now, scholars point out that this list of the nations and the events that follow are really echoes of the Old Testament, particularly Genesis chapter 10, which is a list of the nations, and then Genesis chapter 11, where God comes down among those nations and a miracle of Divided tongues takes place, and the people are separated in their confused languages. A lot of scholars talk about Pentecost being the reversal of the curse of Babel. God's purpose in coming down by the power of the Holy Spirit into Pentecost is to have a people who will live in the presence of and for the nations. That list of nations was a list of the nations of the then known world. And all of them heard the marvelous works of God declared in their own language. And they were profoundly surprised because the ones who were doing the speakings uh, in, in this occasion were identified as Galileans. Now, apparently, the Galileans were regarded as being a very parochial, very provincial, insular people who weren't interested in other people groups. And I kind of joked this morning, tongue-in-cheek, that, that um, if, the, if, if the Galileans were to have a World Series of baseball or, or basketball, um, only Galileans would be involved, okay? Um, and tongue-in-cheek, you know, I mean, I heard an American speaker actually self-depreciatingly joking about the Americans being like the Galileans, insular and parochial. And he said, if you speak in three languages, you're trilingual. If you speak in two languages, you're bilingual. And if you speak in one language, you're American. <laughs> well, the Galileans were apparently like that, okay? And um, yet here, after the Holy Spirit came upon them, here they are reaching out, speaking in the language of other cultural groups. The cultural and linguistic and racial barriers are broken down by the coming of the Holy Spirit. Language is the bearer of culture, and by a deliberate miracle of God, there is no language and thereby no culture that is missed out of this list. So no language, no culture, 
No race has preeminence in this new age and in this new creation. There's not one culture that has pride of place. There's not one culture that could or can uh, claim primacy, thereby reducing all others to a secondary position. A man by the name of Lemon Senene is an African theologian and scholar. He came from an impoverished Gambian village in West Africa and he was from an Islamic background. He became a Christian and ultimately ended up a very distinguished Christian scholar who taught at universities like Yale and Harvard. And he's written a number of books on the power of translating the gospel into different cultures. Senene points out, as only an ex Muslim could, the massive difference between Islam and Christianity in terms of how they view culture. And he says, in Islamic thought, God speaks Arabic. The Quran was originally given in Arabic and it can only genuinely be heard in Arabic. Though you can get translations of the Quran in other languages, they generally say in the introduction to that translation that this is not the pure word of Allah. It can only be really purely read and heard in Arabic. And wherever Islam goes, it creates a unified Islamic culture that looks remarkably the same, whether you see it in Christchurch or in Indonesia or in the Uyghur country, uh, the Uyghur area of China or in the Middle East. Sanane points out how very, very different Christianity is, and it's because of Pentecost. Christianity is the most diverse religion in the history of the world and on the face of the earth, and it takes radically different forms and has taken root in radically different cultures. And each culture can have the Word of God in its own language, and it isn't deficient or somehow um, diffused because it's translated into the local vernacular. Because of Pentecost, there's no culture, no language, and no race that is the right one. So the Holy Spirit comes to every culture, and he honors and renews each one. He also challenges and confronts and reforms each one. Each culture, every culture, is at some level judged by the coming of the gospel and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that's because every culture is created by God and at the same time is marked by fallenness. Every culture has its own unique God-given identity and calling, but at the same time, every culture has its excesses, its imbalances, and its substitutes gods. And the Holy Spirit does not create a unified Christian culture. Now, I know some people might say in their naivety, missionaries from centuries ago went to these nations and tried to produce a unified Christian culture getting Chinese to uh, sing, you know, dress in, in European clothes and sing hymns written by a German. You know, we actually tried to do that. But the Holy Spirit, through the message of the gospel, actually doesn't do that. He lifts people out of their culture while paradoxically leaving them in their culture. And when a Chinese person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit does not remove their Chineseness in any way, shape, or form, physical, mental, cultural or spiritual. When an African becomes a Christian, they do not lose their Africanness. God doesn't flatten out culture. He honors, heightens, and redeems them. Sanonate points out that many secular critics of Christianity have mistakenly said that Christianity tries to rob cultures of their unique diversity. And he comments on that criticism in a way that only an African could. And so I quote, he says, supposedly, 
culturally sensitive, woke secularists claim to honour the cultural diversity of their African brothers and they say things like, we love your food, we love your dress, we love your music. However, Sanane points out that the heart of Africanness is much more than food and music and dress. He says it's to have an enchanted view of the world. It means to have a profoundly spiritual worldview, to believe in spirits, good and bad, to believe in the supernatural world of God, of gods, of curses, of healings, of witchcraft, of miracles. And he says, for all its claims of welcoming diversity, if that African is taken from Africa and he goes to one of these woke Western universities, he said they will beat that enchanted worldview, the very heart of Africanness, out of them, all the while singing praises about their food, their music, and their dress. And he exposes the shallow hypocrisy of Western wokeness in a way that only, as I say, an African could do. The Holy Spirit will not do that. The Holy Spirit makes Africans renewed Africans and not remade Europeans. And at the same time, I would want to say to those of us who are Europeans, he's not interested in us forsaking our Europeanness either and apologetically trying to become something other than we are. He wants us to be redeemed Europeans. Christianity accepts for Africans the reality of an enchanted world. It accepts the reality of the spirit realm. What the Holy Spirit will do, however, is confront the tendency of such a worldview to sometimes devolve into superstition and fear. Pentecost means that God is seeking to create a multi-ethnic, multicultural new creation community in which there's no cultural hegemony, preeminence, or advantage to any culture, language, or race. Paul says it all in Galatians chapter 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And that one verse that's sometimes called the Magna Carta of Christian freedom, Paul takes his machete to all of the great divides of the ancient and the present world. Racial, economic, gender. He takes his machete to it and says, in this new community, none of that will stick. That will not be your identity. You are one in Christ. The early chapters of the book of Acts, the early church, up to chapter 15, God's new creation community are trying to work through the reality of that phrase. And, and they didn't do too well. They were stumbling over these cultural hurdles. They are, they are grappling with the question of whether being culturally Jewish was an advantage in terms of God's purposes and whether these other cultures really need to come into this preeminent culture, the Jewish one, if they're going to really find God in the way that they're supposed to. Are they supposed to be circumcised? Are they supposed to keep the Sabbath? Um, is, is the, are the food laws supposed to be adhered to if these cultural Pagans are going to come into this community and be part of God's people. Now, the emphatic answer of the New Testament is no, they don't have to be. And that's what Acts chapter 15, the first church council was about, where they agreed that pagan cultures didn't have to be Jewish to come into the purposes of God. And today I'd want to say, are there any cultural accoutrements? Are there any particular languages? Are there any racial features that give people an advantage in God's purposes? And the emphatic answer remains the same, no. I'm sorely tempted to say a lot more than this. I'm not going to, because I know I'll get myself into trouble. 
But culturally, the culturally sensitive people that the Holy Spirit is trying to produce, I think, will look very different from the tsunami of cultural wokeness that seeks to infiltrate the church and our culture today. God is not interested in flattening us out and producing what blue minks sang about 40 years ago when they said, what we need is a great big melting pot, big enough to take the world and all it's got, keep it stirring for 100 years or more, turn out coffee-colored people by the score. And the answer to that is no, no, and no. He does not want to produce coffee-colored people or coffee-colored culture or woke, politically correct cultural nonsense. He wants to heighten our diversity and redeem it and restore it and rejoice in it. One people under the touch of God. That's the, that should be the presence of the future in the Christian church. Unfortunately, we, we haven't done any better than the early church have done with it. But it is something that the Holy Spirit wants to produce. The coming of the Holy Spirit in Pentecostal fullness will bring God's new creation people into the presence of the future. They'll start seeing some of the things that lie ahead. It'll bring us into the presence of God. We have a God who wants to make himself available to us with transcendent power and encounters. We're made for it. And thirdly, it'll bring us into the presence of the nations where perhaps we can be a prophetic community where people can find a place and not be discriminated against because of their race, their culture, their, the color of their skin or any other thing, their gender. A community where we, by virtue of new creation touching us, are a renewed people, one in Christ. That's the promise of Pentecost. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.